Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. How many of us have ever said that phrase? Whether we're in a discussion with someone or in a larger group discussion and we're introducing a new idea that hasn't been talked about yet, or we think it's just going to come completely from left field and we're working to advance the discussion in a different direction. I know that I have. And in fact, this practice of challenging ideas or expressing opinions not necessarily my own, but as a way to get people thinking, this is a hallmark of what Free For All on Tuesday is about. And I love that about our weekly gatherings. The skills of arguing for a position that you don't necessarily believe and how to listen when others play devil's advocate with your position are important tools that build up a robust sense of self and your values. Playing devil's advocate is great practice for patience. How not to take things personally. How to give and receive constructive criticism and how to develop openness to considering the merits of others' ideas. The role of a devil's advocate ensures multiple views and opinions are considered, not just the ones that sound pleasing and keep people happy. Did you know that the devil's advocate was once a title of someone in the church community? In the Roman Catholic Church, from the 1580s to the Vatican II reforms in 1979, The devil's advocate was a title given to a person specifically to challenge a proposed beatification or canonization of a person put forward to become a saint. This was the vetting process. It was part of the entire process of a person being considered for sainthood. The devil's advocate examined their character and integrity. Part of the process. So this idea of challenging or examining a person's character and integrity comes from the Hebrew understanding of Satan in Scripture as one who examines a righteous person's faithfulness to God. Satan's acts are more like those of a prosecuting attorney whose task it is to point out weaknesses or spots that could use a little more support in a faithful person's beliefs and actions. In the book of Job, Satan does this on God's behalf. So if we think about the devil in the story that Luke tells us, as a prosecuting attorney who is testing Jesus as a way to help him figure out who he is, we can begin to hear this story in a new way. Luke's account of the gospel includes Jesus being put on the wilderness witness stand and the prosecutor playing devil's advocate with the testimony Jesus heard earlier at his baptism, that he is God's beloved son who is equipped for ministry just as he is. At his baptism, Jesus hears the bottom line truth about his identity. He is God's son, precious and beloved. But when the Spirit leads him into the wilderness, he has to face some powerful assaults on that truth. Commentator Debbie Thomas writes about this paradox of Jesus' wilderness experience 
so beautifully on this first Sunday after Ash Wednesday. She writes, In a bleak and lonely wasteland, Jesus has to trust that he can be beloved and famished, precious and insignificant, valued and vulnerable at the same time. He has to learn that God's care resides within his flesh and blood humanity, and that to be beloved is not to transcend the other grimmer truth, the truth of dust and ashes, that he will die. The devil offers Jesus three opportunities to walk away from this essential lesson by challenging Jesus' identity, his purpose, and his abilities to be the Messiah. And as we reflect on them again, I wonder if we can hear an invitation for us to enter into this wilderness and examine how we handle the tests to our own identity, purpose, and abilities as a congregation in the times in which we live. The message translation describes the first test as the devil playing on Jesus's hunger. If you are the son of God, turn this stone into a loaf of bread. This temptation implies that God's beloved should not hunger. This line of thinking implies that the hunger of the body and the hunger of the heart are unnecessary deprivations and not part of the human experience. In inviting Jesus to magically satiate his hunger, the devil invites Jesus to cheat his way to satisfaction. Instead of waiting, paying attention to his hunger, and leaning into God for its lasting fulfillment. Furthermore, the devil encourages Jesus to disrespect and manipulate creation for his own satisfaction, to turn what is not meant to be eaten, a stone, into an object he can exploit and consume for his own benefit. In response to this test, Jesus states his identity is not based in his personal comfort, but in his faithfulness to God's mission. The prosecutor's second test targets Jesus' ego and sense of purpose. If you worship me, then I will give you power and authority over all the kingdoms of the world. I can give it to anyone I want to. All you have to do is bow down to me and it's yours. With this kind of power, there's no need for a messy trial, no need for a bloody cross, no need to die a terrible death. To be God's child, this temptation implies, is to be center stage, visible, applauded, admired, even envied. God's beloved shouldn't need to labor in obscurity. Because a God who really loves us would never abandon us to a simple, modest life where the powers that be don't recognize or appreciate us. But Jesus responds with his clear understanding that worship and serving God is his purpose. They are not meant to be means to an end. They're not meant to gain fame, notoriety, or power. And then finally, the last test targets Jesus' vulnerabilities. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the top of the temple in Jerusalem. 
God will command the angels concerning you to protect you. They will bear you up so that not even your big toe will be stubbed on the rocks below. The implication here is that if we are beloved of God, then God will keep us safe. Safe from physical and emotional harm. Safe from frailty and disease. Safe from accidents. Safe from death. See, the devil can quote scripture too twisting it to mean things that God did not intend. That's how this safety temptation is such an enticing lie, because it targets our deepest fears about what it means to be human in a broken, dangerous world. We want so much to believe that we can leverage our belovedness to get God to guarantee us swift and perfect rescues, if we just believe hard enough. But no, if the cross teaches us anything, it teaches us that God's precious children still bleed, still ache, still die. We are loved in our vulnerability, not out of it. Jesus refuses to test God's priorities by acting in ways that confine the divine to a personal safety net that will rescue him from being anything less than fully human. When the prosecutor sees this trial will not be going in his favor, Luke says he departs from Jesus until a more opportune time. This is a master storyteller at work. Luke leaves the story open. When is this opportune time for a retrial supposed to take place? Well, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. What if the opportune time for a retrial is today? And the devil, the prosecutor from today's scripture, showed up here to finish this sermon, challenging us on our identity, our purpose and abilities as Providence Baptist Church. What do you think our tests would be? Perhaps they might go something like this. If you are a successful church, there would be a parking lot full of cars every Sunday morning, and worship would be just an hour. Everyone would be happy. They have sung their favorite hymns. No theological feathers would be ruffled. If you are a faithful church, you would have a balanced budget, and all your ministry teams would be filled with passionate, excited people flourishing in what they were called to do. And no one would be arguing. If you are an effective church, there would be families with young children. So many children that there would need multiple Sunday morning spiritual formation classes for children and teens, and their parents would be regular attenders volunteers, and tithers. You see, this is the strategy of Satan, to turn our deepest longings into idols that receive all our attention and devotion, and therefore lead us away from the mission that God has called us to live out. But you know, this strategy is a devilishly brilliant one, 
Because most of the time, we do it to ourselves. We undermine our own sense of identity by believing the lie that we have to prove we are successful, faithful, and effective in order to be worthy of God's love. That way we stay trapped in cycles of anxiety, stress, exhaustion, and helplessness, successfully distracted from living fully into our identity, purpose, and abilities. This was the whole premise in C.S. Lewis's fantastic book, The Screwtape Letters, which was an incredible take on how evil works in the world and in human beings. We seem to be drawn to spending our time and energy as human beings worrying about how to strategize our way out of feeling like we don't measure up to either who we used to be or to those around us. And then we hold all of that disappointment over our own heads, continuing that cycle of stress, anxiety, exhaustion, and helplessness. There is the temptation to let those thoughts and emotions then determine our actions. To believe that our success, our faithfulness, and effectiveness as a congregation are determined by attendance, offerings, and our ability to attract people to church. But here's the thing. Getting people to go to church isn't the same as making disciples of Jesus. And nothing in scripture ever says that the proof of being filled with the Holy Spirit is increased attendance, more money, or successful church programming. What the scriptures, and more importantly, Jesus as the Word of God made flesh, do teach, is that the Holy Spirit was with Jesus in the wilderness, in the barren and bleak and lonely places where he had to confront who he was, what he was meant to do, and how he would go about doing it. The Spirit of God was with Jesus in his humanness as he wrestled not just for 40 days, but for the rest of his life with the both and tension of being hungry and beloved, of being thought powerless and knowing he was precious in God's sight, of being vulnerable and infinitely valued, holding all of this tension in the face of one who dared him to make it an either-or choice. Well, church, what do we do with that tension? Can we experience the same hunger drive to determine our identity, our purpose, and our abilities as a congregation? Can we feel the Spirit's presence with us as we face our temptations, confess their appeal and their pull on us, not just for these 40 days, but for the rest of our lives? Hear me, Providence. God does not compare our success, faithfulness, or effectiveness to our past, to any neighboring churches, or to some standard that we hold for ourselves. And nor does God hold out on us, waiting for us to figure things out, to get it all together, 
or until the right or ideal person or family decides to join our church. Perhaps we're holding out on ourselves, but God is not. Lent is this time for testing our desires, having them tested, examining our expectations and our plans, and then letting the Spirit fill us up with the truth that we, like Jesus, are beloved children of God. As a congregation, we have a purpose and call in life and in this community that no one else can do. Yes, there will be bleak and lonely places along this journey of faith. But you know, there will also be green pastures and still waters. And God is already calling and equipping us with all the abilities, gifts, and companions we need to be faithful followers, no matter the terrain. As a congregation, let us be courageous enough to let the Spirit fill us and send us out to face the hungers and desires of our collective heart. Now is the time to decide who we are and whose we are and what difference that makes in our call to live life together. During these 40 days, hold on to the promise that the Holy Spirit is still imagining us into the people God intends. More is at work than we can see. We are enough because we are beloved. Thanks be to God. Amen.